What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, you'll hear our conversation with music newsmakers of the year, Radiohead. And later on, we'll review the new album from pop-punk heroes Fall Out Boy, and I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, Tommy may have been able to hear Roger Daltrey back then. But whether he could now, if he listens to the iPod too much, it's a question. (laughs) Because there's been a lot of information lately coming from the scientific community about the results of listening to music too loudly on your personal music player, your iPod, your MP3 player, your cell phone. It's estimated that some 240 million of these uh, digital music players have been sold. But that comes with a problem. If you listen much louder than 80-some-odd decibels, then you're in danger of incurring permanent hearing loss, the scientists are now saying. That's louder than what you'd put up with in many noisy workplaces, you know, in factories with big clanging machines. Absolutely right, Jim. Uh, There's actually an organization out of Chicago called Earlove that's addressing this problem of hearing loss, uh, which has been exacerbated by the proliferation of these devices. The woman who runs Earlove is a DJ and former band manager for Poi Dog Pondering, Carolyn Travis. Uh, She started Earlove as a way to provide high-fidelity earplugs at an affordable cost. Carolyn is with us now to talk about this issue. Carolyn, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. So you have a website, earlove.net, that the, the entire issue here is about sound. And one of the interesting facts about your website is it offers a chart of how decibels equate to everyday activities mm-hmm. that you might be doing. It basically puts concerts, most concerts, in the unsafe zone. We're talking about 100-plus decibels. And to, to go in there basically with ears unprotected, you're saying, is is hugely damaging. It's dangerous. You know, it used to be 100, 105 and above, you could start reaching damage. But now the studies are showing anything above 94 dB. What would that be equivalent to? Is that like a, a motorcycle backfire? Right, motorcycle. Um, the subway and normal traffic is 80 dB. There's some clubs in town that are really comfortable around 100, and you think, oh, this is great, this isn't too loud. But even though it doesn't hurt, it doesn't mean that it's it's not damaging your ears. Mm-hmm. My telltale sign was you'd still have those foggy ears the next morning, and you'd think, wow, that must have been really loud because my hearing still hasn't cleared up. And usually like a day later, you're fine. But you're saying even if you don't get that sort of effect... You, uh, you may have done some damage to your ears. You may have done some damage. And usually tinnitus is the first indication. That's um, the ringing in the ear. The ringing in the ear. And that that can go away. And, like, y- your ears can recover. But the more often you go and the longer the exposure, the more damage you're going to get. What, what's your sense of how many people actually do use ear protection when they go out to a show? I would say it's about 20% now. We should make the distinction, Carolyn. Uh, the foam earplugs brings the volume down a little bit, but not really even to the safe level. 
the musician's earplug is designed with a diaphragm in there that lowers the volume level without cutting out any frequency. Right. Well, actually, foam earplugs will, like, bring the level, the dB down, like, 30 and even more. But you do lose sound quality. You use, you lose almost all the sound quality. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas ear love and musician's earplug, it's an even attenuation. So it's like turning the volume down. You uh, got involved in this issue. You're a, a longtime DJ. This is a personal story. This is, mm-hmm. a, this is a crusade for you. Right. I was working at Shuba's about 14 years ago, and uh, a friend of mine, actually a musician that I was hanging out with, Paul Mertens, mm-hmm. he, he asked me, do you have a hearing problem? And I, I said, no, why? And he's like, because your phone is turned up so loud, and you <laughs> always say what? So the very next day, I went and got my hearing tested, and sure enough, I, I was losing some hearing. Just in one ear. I wore one hearing aid. And I, I wasn't very serious about it. And I left Shuba's and started managing Poi Dog for seven years and still di- didn't wear my musician's earplugs. By the time I left my position at, at Poi Dog, I had become a DJ, and I was legally deaf by that time. You, you mentioned the band Poi Dog Pondering that you've been working with uh, for seven years. And, you know, people would not think of them as like, oh, my God, they're just the loudest band ever. They're, nobody puts them on the level of My Bloody Valentine or Black Sabbath or something like that. But... Even at that level, you're talking about uh, right, I, damage. Right. I mean, it's uh, Poidog, it, it gets to 110, 112 easily. What has marked the turnaround uh, where people are starting to become aware of this and are starting to wear earplugs? Well, education. And, you know, like I'd say one in 10 adults now have hearing damage um, from their like mid 20s on. What used to be, you didn't have hearing damage until you were in your 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and some studies show that. It's not so much old age, but it's occupational. Like everyone huh. thinks, oh, you get mm. when you get old, you're going to lose your hearing. But there have been studies in like tribes and other places of the world that don't have airports and traffic and noise like that. And they don't get the type of hearing damage that we do in mm-hmm. developed worlds. Now, one of the important aspects of this is that I think uh, one of the reasons that there was resistance to it was just the f- pure physical sensation of wanting to be bowled over, wanting to have the top of your head sheared off at a great rock concert. And that's kind of, you know, it's stupid. But when you're young and you want that physical rush of a great band playing at top volume, well, you can that, stick- earplugs are just going to cut it all out, man. <laughs> you can stick your hand in the garbage disposal, too. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. No, exactly. and I'm the poster I'm, child for yeah. that. I mean, nobody loves loud music more than I do. Yeah. And unfortunately, I paid the price, you know, at a young age. And the other thing that is a, a mitigating factor in this is, you know, you're intoxicated some of the time. You know, you're, you're, you may be high, you may be drunk, and that, you know, your resistance to, you know, that sound may be, oh, I can handle this. It's not bothering me at all. This is great. Turn it up even louder. Right. Absolutely. Like, you know, drinking alcohol impairs your hearing mm-hmm. to begin with. And then, yeah, like who wants to, like, leave the party? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to. Um, but the fact is you want the party to go on. Hearing hearing loss doesn't regenerate, doesn't come back. It doesn't. It so, doesn't. So you have to make sure you're going to be able to still be rocking out when you're 80. There there are times when, you know, if you if, if you walk out of a club with, for the first time ever and have ringing in your ears, chances are if you just rest your ears, it's going to come back. Um, mine will not come back. Mm-hmm. I'm putting my money on cell regeneration. <laughs> now, now, the modern equivalent of, you know, going out to a show and uh, having your 
you know, head blown off is those iPod iPhones. Uh, you know, you're putting those little buds in your ears, and you see it with a generation of people walking around with these things, and naturally turning them up louder in order to drown out the sound of the street or the L train that they're on around them. And as a result, that volume can be as excruciatingly loud as uh, as a rock concert. Right. I suspect that I started my damage with the Walkman. Mm. So, so you're a, you're a parent. What do you tell that sixteen or seventeen year old in the house that's uh, constantly listening to the the iPod? You know, it's hard because we're all young ones and we think we know yeah. everything. Mainly, I show them my hearing aids. You know, I wear <laughs> one that is behind my ear. It's so big that it has to be big because I need it really loud. And the other one, I let them listen to them feeding back. You know, I'm like constantly every hour doing a personal sound check, and that usually scares them or gets them thinking. Thank you very much, Carolyn, for coming down to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. That is the song Body Snatchers from the Radiohead album In Rainbows. It was released in 2007 out of their website. turned out to be one of the biggest news stories of 2008 when it went on to sell 3 million copies. An experiment that worked. In 2006, we were fortunate enough to have Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead stop into the studio to talk about the making of In Rainbows. Greenwood was also working on his solo album There Will Be Blood at the time, and Tom York had just released his solo album The Eraser. They weren't sure at that time, Greg, how they were going to release In Rainbows. So we asked them directly about the future of the band, the role of a major label if there was going to be one, and the prospect of them just putting the record out themselves. We're uh, here with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I've, I've got to start by asking you guys about this. <laughs> Radiohead played Madison Square Garden, and there's a, a scuffle in the crowd, so some action in the crowd, six big guys surrounding some woman who turns out to be one of President Bush's daughters. You have been uh, rather critical, Tom, <laughs> of President Bush. What was your reaction? I mean, you wrote about this on the web. What was your reaction to having uh, a Bush in the audience? I mean, it, it is as I wrote in the blog. Uh, I don't know how these things work. I'd love to know if she actually had a ticket. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the heck with her. What about the six Secret Service agents? Yeah, I bet they didn't have a ticket. <laughs> they came with six Secret Servicemen to the show, and it's a good job no one told me beforehand. <laughs> well, I, I liked your I liked your list of potential reactions. You might have felt a honored, b amused, c bemused. D, asked if she had a valid ticket. E, objected belatedly on moral grounds. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> F, asked again if she had a ticket and questioned whether this really uh, was what our gigs are about. G, don't blame the daughter for the father, which is, that's very nice of you. And H, shut up or smile. Shut up and smile, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, my, that's my normal response. Well, you, you've been uh, making some kind of news by uh, thumbing your nose at different authority figures. I mean, didn't Blair ask you to lunch or ask you to a meeting and you said, what's the point? Well, yeah, but that was in the context of, of um, I was there to um, help the cause of the Friends of the Earth and the global warming 
campaign, and then he started muttering about. Um, uh, he was making a series of statements which made it blatantly obvious there was no point in meeting with him because he was going to go down the nuclear route, and he thought that economic growth is the the number one priority, and blah blah blah. So all the preparatory work we'd done, or Friends of the Earth had done in meeting him, was completely invalid. And at the same time, they wanted to bring me in, or his people wanted to bring me in and talk me through the whole process, the subtext of which being is, of course, if you leave the meeting and uh, are derogatory about the meeting and say that nothing was gained, then um, you've forfeited the access for Friends of the Earth to the Prime Minister, which, mm. which normally I read as blackmail. So, so you don't buy into that Bono line of thinking that it's worth um, it for Bono, me to no, meet but with see, Bono, Bono can charm the pants off of a devil. I, I, I just tend to call him a devil, yeah. <laughs> which, which gets me in more trouble. I mean, how much of a separation do you draw between your music and, and activism? I mean, obviously you've been involved with Friends of the Earth. You've been very outspoken on environmental issues. How much of that should bleed into your music, and can music affect political change? I mean, Bono obviously believes they are one and the same. And, and that it can affect political change. What do you think, Johnny? <laughs> I don't know. It's really tough right? question. No, no, I mean, it's just... Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just asking Johnny because I'm consciously aware of it, it just being a pain in the ass for you chaps, so I try and keep it out of the way. I think political subjects are only slightly naff when it sounds like preaching, except to music. But when it's, it's, it's descriptive, which a lot of Tom's songs are, then it can be can be great can be can be as poetic as any other subject. Well, and I think I think that uh, Radiohead sets a sterling example. I mean, you guys are an inspiration in terms of being a very successful band that is trying to do things w- with some ethics and concern for the fan, <laughs> which is becoming increasingly rare. Uh, I mean, geez, Madonna's here the same nights that you are. It's three hundred and eighty dollars a ticket. Oh, is she in town tonight, tonight and tomorrow, tomorrow night yeah. oh. for the fourth, the uh, third, and fourth shows? Three hundred and eighty dollars, guys, and and that's uh, a live show, yeah, yeah. In the same way that Cirque du Soleil, I suppose, or Cats is a live show, yeah, or Broadway I mean, spectacle. Like, yeah. She's got loads of dancers, and we've only got Colin. And <laughs> <laughs> I dance. That's, that's why my back hurts. For the level of band that you are, ticket seems to be a re- very reasonable level. Uh, I notice a, a concerned effort on your part not to play with any corporate signage anywhere. Sometimes in the that's, of the that's stadium. basically impossible, which yeah winds me up. But these are kind of issues that you think about. I mean, do you, do you have arguments with your booking agents and with we promoters don't have, about this kind of stuff? We never have arguments with the agents about it because they totally understand um, what we're trying to do. But there's always going to be cities where there are no venues like that or there's a great-sounding venue that has that kind of problem. But, you know, you've got to balance all these things up. You kind of can't be too fascistic about it. Well, as you said, Tom, earlier, that <laughs> you can't basically you can't tour in the U.S. without... Uh, kind of doing some some of this. You have to sort of accept well, I, some of it, or otherwise you wouldn't be able to tour. Yeah, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you want a, a venue where the sound's good and people can see really well, and it's and it's in a city you want to play in. Well, you know, we're talking about this, this monolithic music industry, and in, in some ways it's an incredibly depressing conversation, but it remains to be said that you guys are working on a new album, and there's a lot of question about whether that will even come out on a major label or, or another label. Do you guys even need the music industry to put your music out there? 
See, I have a theory about this, boys, and, and no offense okay, to, to you as being <laughs> as being British and all, but you know what we've had is a, a series of, of Boston Tea Party like skirmishes, bands that make a lot of noise, put a record out on the web, and it's very well received, or, or without a record company. But then at the end of the day, after six months or nine months, like Wilco did, you know, they, they sign to a regular record company. But we've yet to have that lone Minuteman who actually shoots at the British, and again, no offense, <laughs> you know, at Lexington Concord, and the yeah. revolution starts. There's some level of history. I don't know here. Well, who, you know, who is going to be the first real revolutionary band that shows the world that there's no need anymore? Better for, not be for, British. <laughs> well, you guys are in a great position. I mean, what do you need? And, uh, you know, EMI or Capital again. You, you could put out this Radiohead record as Radiohead. Who's going to be the first band that does that? It's only a matter of time. I have to say I was disappointed that Pearl Jam, after their deal ended, ended up going yeah. with RCA. You know, like another and REM reups for multi millions, yeah. and U two, which is in a position they yeah. are U two Global World Incorporated. They right. didn't need to, to to up with Interscope. Up yeah. with Interscope. Let me write that down. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially the Interscope, you know, is Satan, man. Jimmy, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess strike strike one off the list. That's one they won't be. Okay. They agreed with that one. <laughs> I don't think about it. I didn't even think for two yeah. seconds there. It's tough because I mean, there's an element of, of retreat in all this, isn't there? I mean, you can you can worry so much about these things that you don't bother, you know, leaving Oxford. You don't go on tour. You don't put records out, and you don't. You have to confront, you know, the the, the business at some point just to just to carry on. And we want to carry on. So yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm sure there'll be a deal eventually, or a label, or a record company doing something with a recording of well not necessarily we're not going to do it in our back shed but it's no, going to be a tiny the, the, the thing that the, I mean this is the thing that's this an ongoing discussion with Brian who's in the other room and not in here but um, <laughs> is the fact that we actually we we don't have to if we don't want to right. I mean it, you know the, the trouble with it is if we sort of said now yeah we're not going to do that and then we choose to then that would be rubbish and to be perfectly honest it's I think as far as we're concerned it's all about effort and energy and yeah, whether yeah. we really can be asked yeah. to start a revolution at this particular moment, where actually the first priority is all the other stuff. Sure, and sure. should yeah, always remain music. that way. Yeah, I mean, so if if it was a natural part of the evolution of what was going on, you know, and if the energy from the music required that we did that, then we would do it. Um, yeah. I think it's great to pick fights. I love picking fights. However. It has to be a natural reason to do it, not just yeah. one where you feel that, that this, this ought to happen. Remember, this conversation was in May 2006. In October 2007, they followed up, released the album digitally, and in December 2008, here we are sitting on a 3 million selling album. We're going to continue our conversation with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead in a moment on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later, we're going to review the latest release from Fallout Boy.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our rebroadcast of our discussion with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, originally broadcast in the summer of 2006. You know, before the break, we heard uh, Tom and Johnny talking about putting out the record, how they would put it out, and it ended up becoming one of the most celebrated paradigm shifts in the Internet uh, in terms of releasing new music. I asked Tom York how he viewed the Internet as a distribution channel for his music. Any, any way to circumvent the mainstream radio system is obviously good, good thing. I think it's a shame that the industry itself was so utterly dim-witted that they didn't sort of see this coming because, in a way, it was like we could have all... There could have been a very amicable arrangement made mm. for everybody, but they were far too busy reselling the entire back catalogue of Neil Young and Rolling Stones and all this lot again and again and again on CD remasters and making an absolute freaking packet yeah. of the Beatles reissues. Why do they need to care? And you know, wonder, and it's sort of now come back to haunt them because they ain't got nothing else to flog again. Uh, Tom, your first instrument was a guitar? Uh, yeah. And Johnny, your first <laughs> instrument, guitar? Recorder. Okay. Guitar came in there at some point. Sure. Right? Yeah. No, hang on. Before guitar, you, you did something else before guitar. I pretended to play piano. I had like um, violin. I got into this band playing keyboards without knowing how to play, so I used to mm-hmm. keep, oh, it, that's right, yeah. keep the volume turned down yeah. and just pretend to play along. And Tom would always say, I can't hear what you're doing, but it's the kind of thing where if, if you weren't playing, it wouldn't sound as good. <laughs> you're kind of, <laughs> you know, that still happens yeah. now. Yeah. But the point I'm getting at is that, Johnny, on your solo record, I'm sorry. Uh, the record with your name on it. Um, uh, two, I think hmm. only two out of the thirteen songs uh, had a had a guitar on it. Tom, from what I can gather, your record, The Eraser, is entirely composed on computer. Composed, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are pia- there are acoustic instruments on it: piano, drums, bass, guitar. You know, I imagine that kid holding that guitar, and that was like an exciting thing, and one maybe one of the reasons you wanted to be in a rock band. But you guys have really become adept at writing on this this other instrument, the computer. Can you compare it to when you first picked up that guitar and started writing songs? I think generally hardware is usually better than software, isn't it? Which is why things like the um, Johnny's AS system. What is that? Uh, Analog systems made by this guy in Bob. Like by called Bob Intro. Oh, is this is one of the interfaces with the computers where you can still pretend you're. No, it's like an old-fashioned patch bay. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're plugging and turning and tweeting. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The separation of uh, church and state is probably a bad analogy here, but uh, <laughs> there seems to be certain songs that uh, clearly do not fit into the Radiohead. The five, what the five of you would do is very dissimilar to what one of you would do individually. And how do you determine that? When do you know that? It's well, not going to work it in was, the context uh, um, of the Initially, when I, was, when I started up with Nigel, it was a bit of a head masher because I couldn't really... It just made me sort of really twitchy because I was like, well, uh, maybe I should just stop and, and take this over, you know, and show this to the others. And, and then I thought, well, I've just decided to do this now and what we've got in front of us I'm just going to complete it and not think about that. 
because part of the point of, of doing it was seeing how it feels to work on on my own or with Nigel just and um, take responsibility for the whole thing and also just to be working in that realm completely because basically it does get extremely boring for five musicians to sit around while one person edits eight bars and rescribes a couple of beats and sings of you know it's just dull it's not it's not a a band experience but we do do it in the band but you know like doing a whole record like that would obviously not float everybody's boats and it seems like there was a certain amount of dissatisfaction within the band the last couple of years where where some of this stuff sort of bubbled to the surface i mean i'm gathering that from reading some of the interviews in the last year or so that there was some question last year maybe that uh was there another radiohead album even going to be made where did you go from that point to where you are now, where you seem to be, where you're not only touring, but you seem to be actively working on an album again? Well, we had like a, a crazy six months within which the number of children we had seemed to double. <laughs> I mean, last year was a real breeding year for Radiohead. I asked this um, before we turned the mics on. How, how many kids collectively? Uh, I said 11, well, since and the I was last correct, but, but you guys couldn't. You were, you're, <laughs> were, were you here? They were adding it up, trying to figure it out? Ed you swore it was nine, 11 Tom, in total now. 11, and Ed said... It, it might since, be 15 by now. You've been gone since, a couple of weeks. Since no, I last, think we'd know that. <laughs> <laughs> since the last tour, Ed said we had six children. So Wow. wow. <laughs> which is nuts. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Since, sure about since the last tour. But you know, once we we got over, we got over the initial six month hell, yeah, which your fathers know Nine about. Nine months, yes. Um, and and we kind of been rehearsing and on tour. So there wasn't a point um, where where you were questioning whether Radiohead would continue. There have been those points since the Benz, really, even since Pablo Honey, yeah, of um, you know, fraught because it's fraught work panic. It's as much work as a marriage or having a kid, staying yeah. in a band. Well, there doesn't seem to be any halfway with you guys. It seems pretty intense. Well, the, the the mad part about it as well is the truth is that it's not just the band. The truth is it's the band and their families and their kids. Everybody's affected. If I choose to lose the plot tomorrow and, and go and start a, a farm, then everybody's affected. If we choose to carry on, then everybody's affected. And it's tough. It's mm-hmm. a tough thing to do. You know, the easiest thing to do would just be behave badly, not, you know, be the rock and roll dad and not give a shit and just do whatever and just pretend you're still 15 or whatever. Um, Pete Doherty's got that going today, though. You, somebody else is doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's passe, man. Well, and, and but the flip side of that is that, you know, you see these institutions sort of built up, like the Rolling Stones or R.E.M. even, where the argument that comes back, like, if we break up the band now, if we leave now, because uh, R.E.M. said they would never, never, ever record or tour without the Bill four Barry, of them. Yeah. And then the Bill Berry quits the band and they continue to tour. And the response I got from Peter Buck and, and Michael Stipe was that, well, you know, it's not just about us anymore. It's this organization that we have. We've oh, got the Grateful Dead said, 100 you know, we've people. Got 14 and we've got people on the payroll. And, and, yeah, and yeah. families to take care of. Health it. insurance. And, and you have to go back. Well, that's a very noble, <laughs> if that's what you mean. But at the same time, is that the best thing for the music? Is that the best thing for the art? Well, that was the argument we had, really. I mean, well, that wasn't. No, to be fair, that wasn't the argument. The whole, the whole point in, in choosing to carry on was if the music was still w- worth carrying on for and everyone still to be able to go through the mill because the music was worth it. And if that wasn't there, then it wasn't worth it. Where would you say you're at? I mean, in terms of that, uh, do you see an album coming out anytime in the near future? Or 
There's a bunch of new songs that are in the set list when you're performing. Yeah. Uh, It feels feels like um, basically uh, starting again. Um, And it feels like this is the... You know, uh, one shouldn't assume... That that what how we're playing these things that we're playing on stage at the moment is, is in any way finished. It's just that's how we've got them f- for where we are now and la la la. And there's also lots of other stuff that's kicking around. I mean, part of the enjoyment I always have when we get together and we work is that you have things that you've been working on for months and months and months and months and months, and then you have things that just happen straight away like that. So it's not entirely representative of what will happen. I hope. No. Is part of this idea of touring now to see how the material is going to develop even further in live performance? There'll be arrangements played with and, and new mm-hmm. ideas and and some songs that might not make it or might might or we might start doing new ones in a couple of weeks. I don't yeah, know. We've still got still a couple quite... that we need to try out. Yeah, we have. We're tending to have very long sound checks at the moment. I mean, Pink Floyd famously <laughs> did that before all of their their best albums, before Dark Side of the Moon, before Wish You Were Here before animals they would take the owl mountain and tour it for six months you, you know what was really okay. good is that you get to the fact that you just play the song once that day and you're playing it in front of people means you actually concentrate on the song as a four minute five minute piece of music and you and you know what it sounds like it's like standing back from something yeah and just saying it brilliant and seeing like it video rather than when you're recording you're hearing it all day for two days or a week right. you lose you've got no idea or even no idea at all i mean videotape was the one where like this tune called Videotape that we got that was just driving me crazy, absolutely crazy, that we kind of had an idea but we just couldn't see it through and there was like a couple of rehearsals where I just like, I just can't, I can't deal with this. And we chose to play it like first night in London in front of everybody and it was it didn't matter that it wasn't quite right it didn't matter that you know we had to change a few things and blah 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 what matters was finally you get to play it in front of people and you get to see it for what it is rather than this sort of series of equations that don't fit together well it seems like your songs go through three stages it seems like you I've, I've seen you guys introduce new material and you go wow that's kind of an interesting song and then the, the record comes out and it goes well that I remember when they played that live and it didn't sound like anything like the one that ended up in the record. Mm. Do you kind of know that's going to happen or is it is just a case of like, well, we can do this better? You know, well, it's it, interesting because if, if we'd taken, if we'd then gone and tried to re-record Kid A, supposedly using the ideas that people like live, that we were enjoying playing live, um, I, I, I'm pretty certain that most of them just wouldn't translate. One of the One of the things you always have to be aware of is the fact they are two different mediums. And me personally, I mean, I really enjoyed the, the live thing, but the the absolute, f- the most fulfilled I get is when you know you've you've nailed it on tape or digital mm. disc this time. But, you know, that sort of, ah, oh, right, okay, finally. So then, so then you have the luxury of endlessly changing it live. Sure. Because you've basically nailed it anyway. Well, it, it's interesting that... Um 
you you both have been able to make records apart from the band. And I know that in certain bands that is viewed as almost a betrayal, like, oh, he's he's a traitor. Like, I remember what Richard's reaction was when Jagger made his first solo record. It's like, nobody nobody leaves my band and makes yeah, a record. Yeah. And uh, I guess, John, Johnny, you were the first one to, to do that. And I, w- I was curious, Tom, what was the... Uh, what was yeah, the feeling feel within the he, band uh, that, uh, you know, hell, Johnny's going off and doing something on his own. What does that mean for the rest of us kind of thing? Uh, I was just jealous he had the time to do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, my firstborn son was ar- um, had arrived and and uh, the entire world had gone topsy-turvy. And, uh, I'd, you know, in fact, the the maddest bit about it was wasn't we were actually living in the studio at the time. <laughs> with my little newborn son on and off and Johnny was coming in and working down the other end <laughs> was mm-hmm. like, hi Johnny how's it going you've busted <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was bringing was in fun. the string quartet yeah, and the jazz quartet like, wow. he was having lots of fun <laughs> doing these crazy things with drums and I'm going oh, I'm going to change another nappy yeah. <laughs> so Johnny are you coming up with music all the time where you would like to see would like to have more outlets like that for the stuff because Radiohead seems to be moving at I hate to tell it, guys, but it's a snail's pace now. It's a, <laughs> we're, we're getting on three, four years here between albums, you know? You guys are turning into, uh, I don't know. The Flaming Lips. Yeah, something like that. So anyway, do you have lots of music you're stockpiling that you feel could, you know, maybe surface on other, you know, other projects like this? Mm, no more than, than, than was three, five years ago. He's got loads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolute bar. I guess I'm, I'm getting at the bits idea. Are ideas. you guys writing all the time? There's, there's just constant like, bits and pieces of music laying around all the time, and it's a matter yeah. of like, choosing through this. We often need each other to tell which of it is any good, if any of it. Because it's the weird thing is you write ten things, and you think they're all good, or they're all bad, or they're all as good as each other, but then you need to sort of you need to offer it up and have and have things sort of change and mutate. That's kind of that's the fun part. That's the slow part as well. That's kind of explains it. Fun, slow. Does anybody get insulted when they've no, I, turned I just something find into it weird. the band? And I find it really weird, but yeah. all, almost always, you know, a year later, you realize that, that, that they were right, <laughs> annoyingly. Um, yeah, I hate it's that. interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's, the worst. that's the most annoying point, is when you're so sure. And the, the most annoying is when you stick to your guns and then find out two years later that they were right. <laughs> and every time you hear it, you go, oh, All right, oh so is there, is there a song that is on a Radiohead record today that you guys... Now look back on and say, what were we thinking? Probably not on an album. No, not on an album because by then it's got so it's gone through so many filters that we've usually got got the big uh, fluff out. Mm-hmm. There's a few which maybe are, are, are you know a little long. Or we could have done better, but they're all worth all been worth releasing. I think. I bloody hope so. I'm so, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> but you're saying uh, there's a few B sides floating around out there that aren't uh, aren't up to snuff. I don't know. Some of the B sides are good. More like stuff that they worked on for six or nine months or more, and then, yeah, why did we waste that much That's time? in our cupboard, and yeah. you ain't hearing it. Yeah, all right. That's <laughs> right. fair enough. Well, there's one song out there that you guys are playing live now that I think has been around for years and years, right? That mm-hmm. never quite got on a record, and people are wondering when it's going to be out there. I'm, I'm, I'm losing the title now. but News, probably. Yeah. Is that, gonna, is that getting anywhere? You feel like it's getting to the point where it's going to make the cut for this next record? I think it's got there, isn't it? I mean, yeah. We'll probably end up arguing about the little tiny nooks and crannies of it in the end, but I mean, basically, yeah, we have that. It's in the bag. Don't get it. 
I know you guys got to go, but uh, we really appreciate the time. We're here with Tom and, and Johnny from Radiohead, and it's been a real pleasure. I thought we just getting warmed up. I, but I, hey, I, I you want to play with the Steinway? It's yeah, all yours. That'd be cool, mm-hmm. man. So which one am I going to do, John Joe? Headphones? Juicy Lucy. <clears throat> Wow, that's uh, Tom York with a beautiful version of I Want None of This on Sound Opinions. For the complete Radiohead interview, footnotes, and more, visit soundopinions.org. And if you want to share your sound opinions, call our hotline at 
859-1800, or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of Fallout Boy's new record, as well as Jim's addition to the Desert Island Jukebox. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That's the song I Don't Care from the new Fallout Boy album, Folie Adieu. Fifth studio record from Fallout Boy, a Chicago based pop punk band uh, that formed in 2001. Uh, it's interesting, the title translates as a madness shared by two. And uh, I think it's appropriate because this band it really is a, a, a two-man show. I mean, no offense to guitarist Joe Troman and drummer Andy Hurley. This really is a uh, project of Pete Wentz, the bassist and lyricist and public figure at the forefront of Fallout Boy. And the singer and composer and arranger, Patrick Stump, sort of the anonymous frontman, if that's possible, they have become the most successful pop-punk band of the 21st century, sort of emerging from that pack of bands, Good Charlotte, Some 41, Simple Plan, who were influenced by the early 90s pop-punk of bands like Green Day and taking it to a new level with the MTV and commercial radio audience. Fallout Boy's last couple of albums have sold in the multi-millions, and uh, this album is destined to be one of the biggest selling albums of 2009. Let's hear a track from it. It's called She's My Winona from Fallout Boy on Sound
That's She's My Winona by Fallout Boy from their fifth album, Folie Adieu, A Madness Shared by Two. Greg, that was an interesting point you made about Stump and Wentz. I think, actually, Wentz, in writing uh, the, the lyrics of that song we just heard and entitling the album, was referring to the madness surrounding him and his celebrity bride, yeah, Ashley sure Simpson. Was. And, of course, he's singing about his son there, the you know, Bronx Mowgli Wentz. But there's something about Pete Wentz. He is much smarter than the average reality TV celebrity bear. That song is simultaneously making fun of his own celebrity marriage. I mean, she's my Winona. Winona Ryder yeah. d- dated all the rock stars. He's got Ashley Simpson, right? And, and you know, he knows he's a celebrity. He's posing nude on the internet with pictures that got stolen, right? All that silliness. But he's commenting on it at the same time, just as there can be good reality TV. All right, 99.9% of it stinks. <laughs> there, there, there can be good mall punk. This is essentially a hair metal album, you know, like the best <laughs> of the 80s, you know, like Poison or something, yeah. but redone as punk for the new millennium. There's nothing wrong in that. There's no genre in rock that is completely devoid of goodness. The best practitioners can make something out of it. I think with the silly ingredients of big, catchy hooks and arena rocking melodies, uh, you know, Fall Out Boy delivers the goods. The last album, they were kind of taking an R&B turn. This one, they're going right for that stadium stomp. And this is just a delightful, good, fun, stupid record. They're trying to make radio pop singles. There's no doubt about it, Jim. Uh, They are seriously ambitious in that regard. Uber arrangements, lots of ear candy, strings (laughs) and horns and all sorts of cameo vocalists. I mean, they've got Lil Wayne on this record. They've got Debbie Harry. They've got Elvis Elvis Costello. Costello. Pharrell Williams. But when it comes right down to it, it, it's all about Patrick Stump for me. I think the, the guy is a truly gifted vocalist. He puts them a cut above most American rock bands because his voice can just about sing anything it wants. It reminds me in a way of uh, Cheap Trick and Robin Zander, a man of a multitude of voices, a guy who could sing really harrowing, screaming metal songs or could do these tender ballads or impersonate a soul singer. And I think Patrick Stump is somewhat in that tradition where he can sing just about anything. But as you said, what they really specialize in is those three four-minute pop songs that sound really great, blasting out of a car stereo. And it's not meant to be taken as anything more than that. It's a good pop-punk band. I don't think this is a buy-it album by any stretch of the imagination, but there's some good songs on it, some good pop singles. <laughs> it's a burn-it for me. Buy-it, burn-it, trash-it. That's our rating scale. I will say buy-it, and someday, Mr. Cott, you will regret sliding <laughs> Fallout Boy from the beginning, and you will be a buy-it, too. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island and pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox to play a track we cannot live without. And this week, it is Jim DeRogatis' turn. Greg, I'm going to revisit a song by Neil Young that I had initially dismissed upon its release. I was not a big fan of his 1992 album Harvest Moon. I thought it was kind of a cheap bid to do a sequel to the classic 72 album Harvest. I thought Neil was getting soft. That having been said, you and I are both two of the biggest Neil Young fans in the universe. I'm high on Neil again because we saw him a couple of weeks ago here in Chicago on this recent tour. The guy's never played a bad show as far yeah. as I'm concerned. I've seen you know more than a dozen Neil Youngs. So I've never seen him do an off night. But there have been albums that have been not as good as other albums. However, 
I'm reconsidering Harvest Moon, in particular the opening track, Unknown Legend, and the credit must go to the director, Jonathan Demme. Demme has made some of the greatest music films in history. He directed Stop Making Sense by the Talking Heads. He did Storefront Hitchcock with Robin Hitchcock. Uh, He uses music well in his regular feature films, too, Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia. But in Rachel Getting Married, the film he released earlier this year, there is a wonderful scene where the couple at the wedding, you're at this wedding, what everybody says about the movie, uh, Ebert wrote about it in his review. This is a wedding you wish you could have been to. The male actor is Tunde Adabimpe, the leader of TV on the radio, a band that you and I both like very much, made our top 20s for the year. Uh, but, But my favorite piece of music from Tunde in the year just passed is when he delivers his vows during the wedding as an a cappella version of the Neil Young song Unknown Legend, which opens Harvest Moon. And it really made me go back to that song, that scene in the movie, and then also seeing Neil play it again himself uh, recently in concert. And I said, wow, I still don't like the rest of Harvest Moon, but that that's a classic. That's a song that's up there with Heart of Gold or, or Needle and the Damage Done, any of the greatest Neil Young songs you, you can name. I just kind of missed it the first time. You know, listen to the Neil Young song, and I think it will bring an added dimension to your appreciation of both the film and of Neil Young and of Tunde Adebimpe as well. Here it is on Sound Opinions, Unknown Legend by Neil Young. She used to work in a diner Never saw a woman look finer I used to order just to watch her float across the floor She grew up in a small town Never put her roots down Daddy always kept moving Somewhere on a desert highway She rides a Harley Davidson Her long blonde hair flying in the wind She's been running half her life The chrome and steel she
great choice, Jim. Unknown legend by Neil Young. We've got some more great songs coming up next week when we do our annual mixtapes for 2008, in which we compile some of our favorite music into a mixtape that everyone needs to hear. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced in this last episode of 2008 by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with executive production oversight by our fearless leader, rumored to be the godfather of Bronx Mowgli Wentz, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, my name is Eric. I'm a listener from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm responding to the caller who made the statement that fans should have term limits. Hey guys, this is Neil from San Diego, California. Maybe there should be term limits for bands. Maybe uh, 10 years after their debut album, they have to break up because it doesn't seem like uh, anyone's really adding much to their legacy post-10 years. The only thing I could think of in, in thinking about fans that that would not apply to, perhaps the FDR of our time is probably The Who. Had The Who had term limits, you probably wouldn't have seen Who's Next or Quadrophenia. Uh, arguably one of the best rock albums of all time, so uh, perhaps they're the isolated case. This is a good work, guys. Thanks. You got altered information. You were told to not take chances. You missed out on new dances. Now you're losing all your dances. Hey, guys, this is Ethan from Synecdoche, New York. I just finished listening to the best albums of 2008 and really enjoyed it. Uh, but I wanted to respond to one of your callers who suggested that there should be term limits on bands. Radiohead is a great example of a group that has continued to put out great music, most notably in Rainbows, which just came out, uh, which I believe is, is well over 10 years past their initial release of Pablo Honey and... Uh, what I think is one of their best albums to date. Thanks. This is uh, Rich. I'm calling from Chicago. It breaks my heart when I listen to you guys talk intelligently about an album for a couple of minutes and share opinions, and then seemingly at the end reduce it to, I think it's a buy it record. I think it's a burn it record. It's like you're totally destroying everything else you've said by reducing it to this little sound bite. And uh, it's like the thumbs up, thumbs down mentality, and I think it's, it's what's wrong with a lot of criticism today. And... 
I think you're kind of insulting your listeners by giving these kind of really simple ratings. I don't know if you need to abolish the rating system or come up with a point scale or something a little more creative, but uh, I don't know, guys. I think I think we're all pretty sick of that one. All right, thanks again, guys. Doing a great job. So long. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Jeremy in Rifle, Colorado. I just listened to your uh, end-of-the-year best-of records there, and you said at the beginning of that episode that you felt that music was as good as it ever was and that people who thought that 57 or 91 or 83 or what have you were far superior were all wet. But I was looking over your Desert Island jukebox selections, and of 50 songs you got posted on your, uh, your website, you have maybe two or three songs that are even from this nameless decade. And since these are the songs that you seem to be willing to listen to as you die slowly from dehydration and exposure, and not many of them are new and current songs, in fact, like two or three out of 50, statistically that would suggest that you don't really believe that. You might say it, but you don't believe it. The proof is in the DIJ selections there. So, good show, though. That's about it. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.